We've been studying the big book, cover to cover, and today we do dive into the book of Deuteronomy. Let's go back to the failure of Kadesh Barnea, and before I do that, let me pray for us. Father, we love you because you love first. We thank you for Stonebridge, for your people. I pray for each man and woman here, young, uh, some of us older, wherever we are in our walk with Christ, that you'd encourage us through your word, through your spirit, and to be among your people. It is a privilege to open the word, to sing songs of praise, to acknowledge that we love you, to acknowledge that we are nothing apart from you. Help us, whether we're recovering from surgeries, uh, dealing with illnesses, uh, discouragement, work, uh, loss of work, loss of money, uh, challenges in life, not working the way we wish it would. Help us to soldier on, uh, to be uh, of good courage, to trust you, to think a little more about you and your relationship to us than simply our prosperity and of horizontal view of life. We thank you that you hear our prayer. We thank you that your word is true, that your spirit affirms and encourages, and we uh, want to love you and serve you. Give us a, a mind to pay attention to your word today, and may what is my opinion be forgotten and your word stand eternal. In Christ's name, amen. Kadesh Barnea, what should have taken 11 or so days takes 40 years. The 13 spies go into the land, we come back with the bad report, and uh, of course then they try to recover from it, which is a, a gross violation of God intended, and that failure at Kadesh Barnea will cost them 40 years of wandering. The devastating disobedience, interestingly, is recorded without spin. I was talking to Jay Condor, who's helping with sound today. Christy, his wife, does children's ministry with us. Uh, Jay was just at the British Museum. I don't know if it's called the British Museum of Natural History. I forget the name. But if you ever go there, they have the Sennacherib tablets. We've talked about this before. These are enormous Stella rock carvings that uh, the Assyrians tell the story of what they did to the Israelites. And it corroborates the story of Isaiah. It corroborates the kings of Assyria. So it, it's, it, but, but when they record it, they don't record what happens to them on the negative side of the chart. Scripture is unapologetic without spin. And so we get this terrible story at Kadesh Barnea, the terrible consequences of 40 years in the wilderness. And um, for Christians and Jews alike to understand the consequence of violating God's command is really one of the sub-themes of this book. By the time Israel will transition in this book, we'll go from Moses to Joshua. Most of you know the story pretty well. And during this last section of, of Deuteronomy, we'll talk about what's going on more than just a second law giving. Um, there's, remember, everybody, how old and under are going to die? Everyone 20 years and down over is going to die in the wilderness. So you do the math. So you got 59-year-olds are the oldest people going into the promised land, and obviously they had children along the wandering period. Remember that the wandering was a long procession of funeral services in the wilderness. A lot of people died. A lot of people died. So everybody over 20 is going to perish because of the failure at Kadesh Barnea. 
So this younger group of 59-year-olds, and there's two outliers, Joshua and Caleb, both in their 80s, Scripture records, and they, of course, will be the elder statesmen who will lead this, Joshua being the frontispiece, Caleb being sort of the Abishai, the guy that's still fighting, that still believes God, that's still going to take the land, and for many, uh, a great namesake, by the way, to be a Caleb uh, because of, of all that God has done through that story. Um, the English title is arguably a mistranslation. It was pulled from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. Let me read that. You can watch it. Now it shall come about when he, referring to a king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So the way the translators chose this title was by this phrase, write himself a copy It's a very important passage because what's happening there is the Levitical priests have to oversee, let's just use David, David transcribing the first five books. Remember we talk about the Pentateuch, the first five books, Pente in Greek five. It's really, think of it more like five chapters as opposed to five books because there's the continuity. And for the most part, this is the law. When we refer to the Torah and the, refer to the Torah or the law, we're referring to the first five books. And this, of course, being the last of those. Uh, some of your study Bibles might have a margin note to take you to this verse. And that historically is where they got the title from. Um, the Septuagint, which we've talked about, again, don't, just for repetition and, and reinstatement, uh, refresher, is, is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But then you have, it's taken into Latin. And so Latin was what? The lingua franca of the day. And so when you put all these things together, you get a word called Deuteronomy. That's the, that's the long and short of it. It can mean a copy, a second. It can mean a duplicate. Uh, but the idea is it's a repetition in so many ways of what we've already read in the law. So some people look at it sort of as redundant. And this, of course, fuels the fire of those who don't believe Scripture's oversight by the Holy Spirit or different authors and so forth. But the second law underscores that Moses is repeating and restating. Why? Because for 40 years they've been wandering. Uh, I I often tell pastors, we are in the business of constant re-education. You assume nothing anymore when it comes to Bible knowledge and scripture and understanding salvation and the gospel, you assume nothing anymore. As reading comprehension continues to plummet in America, Bible knowledge plummets probably two or three times faster than what just reading and history and awareness of things. So we're always teaching things new. One of the reasons we wanted to do this overview of the Bible was because we got some little people over there that they really need to understand the overview of all these books of the Bible. It's a big old fat book they're carrying around. A lot of us need to be reminded and refreshed. This isn't verse-by-verse exposition, which is sort of our stock and trade, my stock and trade, but we thought it'd be an important exercise. The Hebrew title, as Dana Dana mentioned, is These Are the Words. And if you look at Deuteronomy 1.1, these are the words. Your English translation lay very little bit. Again, that doesn't have the lilt of Deuteronomy because these things become ensconced in our mind. Um, but one of the titles I like for the book is used later was called The Fifths because you had five books and this was the fifth, the final one of the package of the Pentateuch. Again, we've talked about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They all have titles that are different than the title in your Bible. 
doesn't hurt anything. It's just an awareness of how this body of literature was referred to. We've mentioned the author being Moses throughout the story. And in Deuteronomy, we've got 30 plus passages that reference where Moses directly or indirectly is writing something down. Now, where this gets interesting and where some of the controversy comes, there are parts Moses could not have written. He couldn't write of his death and his funeral. And we will never know for bold dogmatic uh, assurance what, who wrote that, but there are some common sense theories. I happen to believe it was Joshua that filled in the blanks, if you will. Um, we know by the time of Paul, we have what's called an amanuensis. We have someone who's writing for Paul. So he's probably in his prison home house arrest, probably talking. He's getting, he's getting older. Pretty good suggestion. He's losing his eyesight like most of us are as we get older. And so he needed someone to help him. And so they would write it down. And uh, this, of course, would be an, a very common practice. Think of all that Moses did. And I'm sure that Joshua's with him. He's at the, tent of the, the door of the tent all of his life. It would make sense that he or someone else, perhaps a Levitical priest, would be copying and filling in some of the blanks, as it were. Anyway, scholars lose sleep about this. I don't. I think Moses wrote it for the most part, and those parts that we say Moses couldn't have written it, we say, right, someone else did, and more than likely, it was Joshua to fill in the blank. The overview of this book is, is easier than Leviticus, and it's simply three sermons or three speeches. That's an easy way to think about Deuteronomy. It's three sermons or three speeches. It seems long when we read it, but if we give a little outline to it, it helps. Um, Dr. Tom Constable uh, makes this observation. In contrast to Leviticus, however, Deuteronomy is law preached rather than law taught. Law preached rather than law taught. We all had professors in high school or college that were teachers and they were boring as dirt and they made us learn, memorize dates and outlines. Did any of you have to learn how to do outlining before the computer? I mean, hit the Roman number one, and the capital A, and the subsets, and drove you crazy. And then you go, and if you, if you did master's or, or doctoral level work, you had to learn the Chicago or APA. I mean, this stuff drives you crazy. You have these forms. Think of Leviticus in that way. Think of Deuteronomy as Chuck Swindoll preaching. So Moses is going to preach three lengthy sermons. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, if you're not aware of Wiersbe, he's a delightful, delightful man. And his, his goal was what I would call a seventh grade educated product, but he was very smart in his synthesis. And he puts this book into four brackets and I thought was a very helpful outline. Historical concerns, practical concerns, prophetical concerns and personal concerns. And then typical and uh, the, the way his, his mind works. Historical, Moses looks back. Practical, Moses looks within. Prophetical, Moses looks ahead. And personal, Moses looks up. So he looks back, looks within, looks ahead. That's pretty good. That's a lot of homework to get there. I marvel at these guys that can do acrostics and all this kind of stuff. I, I could stay awake for 50 years and couldn't come up with it. But uh, I love the simplicity without losing the content. Now, keep in mind these three sections or three sermons. We've got a history, and he's going to review to these people. Don't forget, context is so important. They've been wandering in the wilderness. They've been grumbling. They've been, they've been an inconsolable people, and it's been one long funeral. It's not been fun. And now they're on the cusp of crossing the Jordan into 
the so-called promised land that God is going to give them. And so Moses is going to review the history. Where Wearsby talks about looking within and ahead, the one thing he misses, I think, is the important word covenant. Because covenant is a key concept in understanding the testimonies, the laws, statutes, and judgments. And those are three subcategories that you go very deep on. There are certain laws, certain testimonies, and certain judgments that occurred, and that gets all tied up in the covenants. The blessing and cursing motif, most of us are familiar with. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll bring the curses of Egypt on your head. And so this is the back and forth blessing and cursing motif that is true throughout all bilateral covenants. We've made this differentiation over and over again. Unilateral, Abrahamic. Noahic, new covenant. Remember, unilateral covenant is made on the basis of the person making the covenant. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing. There will never be a global flood again. The new covenant will fulfill the law and the spirit will indwell your heart. So these unilateral covenants that God's going to perform stand in contrast to the bilateral, if then. Make sense? If you do this, I'll do that. If you don't, this is going to occur. So the covenant language is really important in Deuteronomy. Um, if you're a land person uh, and you envision, I, I probably should throw a map up at some point, if you envision the Jordan River, so again, uh, Israel is tucked up from your perspective, so I can do this. So here's the Mediterranean Sea over here. Here's Israel, kind of wedges out like this. At the top, 21-some uh, miles today. At the bottom, uh, not quite 150. Smaller than the size of Connecticut. Keep that in mind. So here's the Mediterranean Sea, the way you're looking at it. Uh, on this side, we have Jordan. We have Jordan and Lebanon, Syria, and Damascus, and so forth over here. So this is, this is the land piece of Israel. They're on the east side. How do I do that? I'm backwards. They're over here. And they're going to cross the Jordan into the land. And it's going to be an incremental possession of the land. It's not going to be one and done. And that's where really the hard work is going to come in. This area is known as the Plains of Moab. And I would, I'm not bulldogmatic, but I'm pretty dogmatic. This whole thing is happening right there on this level playing area before they cross the Jordan. The whole book of Deuteronomy is a pretty quick story on a timeline on scope and scale, not the 40 years. It's a review before we go to play the game, let's say. Uh, Wilkinson and Boa, Bruce Wilkinson and Boa produced a really good book many years ago called Talk Through, they misspelled it, T-H-R-U, I can't believe it, Talk Through the Bible. And this is their introduction on Deuteronomy. I've edited it a bit. Deuteronomy consists of a series of farewell messages by Israel's 120-year-old leader. It is addressed to the new generation destined to possess the land of promise. Those who survived the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Deuteronomy, like Leviticus, contains a vast amount of legal detail, but its emphasis is on the layman rather than the priests and sacrifices. Moses reminds the new generation of the importance of obedience if they are to learn from the sad example of their predecessors. Moving from the past... Israel's history, to the present, Israel's holiness and homeland, to the future, Israel's new leader, Moses stresses the faithfulness of Israel's God who brought us out 
to give us this land. And let me jump right away then to where they pull that passage from. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 23 to 25. And why don't you read this aloud with me? Let's read it well. It is a part of the word of God. Read with me. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord, verse 24, Thank you. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as today. In verse 25, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. And if we go back to that first chapter of verse 23 for a second, I would appreciate it. Notice he brought us out from there in order to bring us in. This seems so basic, so redundant, easily I get it. Don't forget it. Was it redemption from slavery, consecration to worship? That was the story of Exodus. We got to get you out of Egypt and Egypt out of you and consecrate you out of slavery, consecration to worship. And that's precisely what Deuteronomy continues. He brought us out of there in order to bring us in. And so this process, this cleansing, this consecration is all part of their story. Um, there's, there's an old commentary by A.D.H. Mays, and he wrote a really good synopsis, but it's too long and too cumbersome to read. So I've taken great liberties, and I've edited it down to this one little slide. If we can jump ahead, Dave and Elizabeth. Deuteronomy is summed up this way. It's a call to obey, one God, one sanctuary, one promised land, and one elect people. Say it with me. One God, one sanctuary, one promised land, one, one more time. One God, one sanctuary, one promised land, one elect people. These are non-negotiables. And Dana referred to monotheism. We're going to talk about that in a moment. There's one true God. And this is going to lead in the ancient Near East, there was no other religious group that had one God. They just come out of Egypt that had, some have chronicled 8,000 plus different names for idols. It's, it's impossible to keep up with them. The ancient Near East, Moab, Chemosh, all these different gods, the Ashtaroth, the Asherah, all these different gods and idols were like, you, you, if you had a mantle, you they would cover all your shelves in your whole house to keep up with the idols. Those gods were also capricious. They fought against each other. They negated each other. They were, like, they were like Marvel cartoon characters. Some had certain powers, but others had different powers. None of them were the sole powerful entity. You know, if it was, uh, it was kryptonite to, uh, to, to uh, Superman and it was... Um, what was uh, Green Lantern was my favorite. Yellow, remember yellow? Yep. Who comes up with this stuff? Is it all Stanley Lee? Yeah. Yellow dismantled uh, Green Lantern. He had no power when, Green Lan when yellow came along. Whatever, I don't know. It's just crazy stuff. Uh, it all goes back to idolatry. It's, it's a parallel that there was no monotheistic supreme sovereign. Israel, you got one God. You got one sanctuary. There's one place you can worship me. And let me underscore that. You're going to do it my way. The sacrifices have to be done according to the book. There's one promised land. 
I'm not giving you all this territory. I'm giving you one segment of land, and you're going to take it according to my plan. And there's one elect people. Israel would be the ones to go in. If they learn anything in 40 years of wandering, you think occupying the land of promise would be God's terms, God's way, we're excited to do it. They're no different than us. And we see it right away that they struggle. Uh, what I want to do now is give you six or seven lessons, depending on how quickly I can get through them without rushing, is to try to encapsulate Deuteronomy because as I, it was a wormhole as I got into it. I just kept going and going and going way away. I got to do this at some level where it makes some sense. Let me give you a number of lessons. Number one, keep your eye on God's promise. All these come from a chapter and verse in Deuteronomy. Keep your eye on God's promises. The Abrahamic covenant is inviolable. Uh, the covenant is mentioned 27 times. The land is referred to over 183 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, again, my, my Christian brothers and friends and sisters who believe in what's called replacement theology, that Israel no longer has a place in God's eschatology and timeline, I'm not mad at them. I just think they're wrong. And I think it's due to the hermeneutic, the way they look at the Bible. And when you see the emphasis of covenant and land 183 times, the land was God's gift to them, one land that he was going to give them. Um, it, no, it, can't be, it can't be thwarted. Uh, it mentioned in Numbers, God remains faithful even when his people remain faithless. This covenant's going to march on. So for you and me as a believer, if you've trusted that Christ lived, died, was buried, and came back from the dead, and you've put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, you are given the promise of eternal security. You're given the promise of salvation. You're given the promise of the forgiveness of your sins. There's not a person in this room in the course of your Christian life that hasn't wondered, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Because we sin repeatedly, we get apathetic, we get lost in the weeds, we don't care, we get into something that, that numbs our pain in life, money, sex, and power, whatever it is, and we get in that hole and we go, maybe I really didn't believe it. God's promises are as secure as the day he told Abram, you'll become Abraham, innumerable, and you'll be a blessing to the world. And you and I, friends, if you're a believer in Christ, we're a part of that blessing to the world. We're part of that lineage that carried out. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. So I know it's kind of cheeky when we talk about the promises of God, and it's kind of old language. It's his word. He's made you a promise. Keep your eye on it. Amen. Keep your eye on it. When you doubt, there's an anchor. When you doubt, there's a benchmark. When you're unsure, go back to not what you believe, but to whom you believe. It's not a matter of my exercising my faith that keeps me saved. It's what he's done in our place on our behalf instead of you and me. Secondly, even in the wilderness, we do not lack. Deuteronomy 2.7 is an interesting verse. I don't have it on the screen. Let me turn right over there. Deuteronomy 2. 2, verse 7, if I can read it. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Think about that. No leeks, no onions, no pots of meat, no fish. But he said you lack nothing. When I was in, uh, Cindy and I were in graduate school, back in those days we had, I had to wear a coat and a tie. And we had no money. We had no money. Do y'all know what Dickie's work pants are? 
So uh, this, I was in Houston, Texas. This is early 80s. There was a Dickie Outlet store. I still remember this, 888 a pair. I bought like three pair of Dickie's khaki work pants and I could, I could starch those babies and at 30 yards, they were, they were Ralph Lauren. You couldn't even tell the difference. I had some Aero 6040 cotton polyester shirts that were, you know, they were like white and beige and blue. And I had like three or four red ties and different iteration. I had a polyester sport coat. I wore that outfit for four years of seminary. And it was so interesting because those khakis, when I finished seminary, they like disintegrated. They held up all the way through seminary, those 888 pants. But when I washed them post-seminary, it was like they were yard pants from then on, you know? I still had a pair of a couple of years ago. It was pretty interesting. But they just, it was, they were done. They were gone. And I called those my wilderness wandering khakis. Because when I got out of the land of wilderness at seminary, I didn't need them anymore. Whenever I read these kind of passages, my mind goes back to even when you don't have what you want, you have what you need. Even when you don't have what you want, you have. I don't, listen, if you're sitting here right now this morning or you're listening to this, broad, this broadcast podcast sometime in the future, you got what you need. Do I have everything I want? No. I just buried my mother. I've got all sorts of things to go through with that. I mean, there's sadness in everybody's life. We have cancer. We have surgery. We're all facing this thing as we get older. Uh, you young people, don't be discouraged. Live in denial. Uh, you know, but, but things are not going to go necessarily the way you want them to go. And in the dark times, you lose your job, you lose your marriage, whatever. You got what you need. Do you have what you want? No. And frankly, who could ever have all we want? Because we're all bigger, better, newer, more. Bigger, better, new, and more. You got to have bigger, better, new, and more. Time to upgrade, time to update. We can't live with that. We have to do this. My father would excoriate me when I, you know, it's like going to see my dad asking for five bucks was like going to see the Wizard of Oz. It was terrifying. Mom was a pushover, but if dad was, you know, kind of like my home for my kids. They always got money for mom, not me. But you walk down the, you know, it's like walking down the, the shadow of the valley of death to go ask dad for five bucks. And I, t I need five. Well, for what? Well, Is that a want or a need? Given that, God, given that determination, Dad, it's always a want. Then you ain't going to get it. So I started mowing yards, you know, because it's like the only way to get money. But I still remember it. In almost 62 years and a couple of days, I'll be 62. How'd that happen? Uh, I still remember it. Is it a want or a need? And we always overparent, right? overcompensate for the liabilities of our parents and we overparent our kids, bless their hearts. I was talking to some friends this morning about their three grandkids. You seen the bumper sticker, have grandchildren first? There's no rules with grandchildren, right? But um, what do we want and what do we need? And teaching our children this is so critical. That said, throughout the theme of this book, God's people are problem people. God's people are an irritation they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're wayward. Don't do this. Do all this, I'll bless you. I want to do the one thing I was told not to do. It's in your spiritual DNA and mine. We cannot escape it. But God, through our grumbling, our sin, our distance, our apathy, our choices, if you're sitting here today, you got all you need. Oh my, I need to pay my mortgage. Well, no, you don't. 
You could live somewhere else. Well, I need better health insurance. I get you, but you know what? You'll, you'll, you'll make, you'll figure it out. God will take care of you. It's a good reminder. Third, remember and do not forget. 15 times in the book of Deuteronomy, we have phrases that begin with remember and nine times do not forget. They're key terms repeated. Now, this is the most obvious thing you're going to hear all day. Why? Why does God say remember and don't forget? Because we don't remember and we forget, just like your kids. How many times have I told you? You ever said that to your kids? You ever said that to an employee? We've been over this how many times? Remember, don't forget. This is nothing, this isn't rocket theology. Now, I put a bunch of verses there that you, know, you may or may not want to chase down. If you have any technology, you can do this on your own in a, a few clicks. But let me just read you some of these. I'm not going to read all of them, just a few of them. Remember that you were slaves. That's a pretty good stick in the eye. You were a slave. Remember that what the Lord, uh, your God, did to Pharaoh. Remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. This one I really like. This is 8.18. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. Do we need that in this day or what? I'm totally pro. I mean, this Middle Tennessee thing, uh, in no small part because of this organization who we are using their fine facility has taught people to get out of debt, to earn wealth, to earn income, to be generous. It's a wonderful thing. But that, that in a way can have negative consequences if not done in the right way or for the right reasons. It's not just about accumulating wealth. It's about accumulating an ability to care for yourself, for others, for grandchildren, for people in need, for ministries. Maybe your thing is uh, uh, teenage moms. Maybe it's uh, sex trafficking. Maybe it's, you know, uh, whatever, helping HIV and AIDS, orphanages, whatever. You got a heart for that. And out of our surplus, no, out of our whatever we have. I like this reminder that it's God who gave us power to make wealth. Nine, seven, remember, do not forget and interesting, both are used together. Remember, and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath. And every time you and I sin, that's a good admonition. Four nine. Remember, uh, do, do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and grandsons. Do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, and last, do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Remember, don't forget. Number four, watch yourself carefully. As my friend Kurt Thompson says, Dr. Kurt Thompson, the psychiatrist, pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Watch yourself carefully. It only occurs three times in Deuteronomy. It smacked me in the head when I was reading through the book this week. Pay attention. Watch yourself carefully. Um, there's two sides of this coin. When you sin... And after you've gone through the guilt, shame, and hopefully asking for forgiveness, do you stop and say, why did I choose to sin at that particular time? Was it the time of day? Was I hungry, angry, lonely, tired? You know, the old HALT thing they teach people in recovery? It's a great, it's a great acronym. Never go out the door. HALT. If you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. If, a, if an addict goes out when he's hungry, angry, lonely, he, he or she will use 
I told this to a friend years ago, and they go, if that's the case, I can never go out the front door. Because I'm always hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. It's a baseline. Um, watch yourself. Pay attention when you sin. And then maybe, I'm not saying study your sin to be a better sinner, but study why and when you sin, and then ask God for help in that area. Okay, well, what is it about me that I do this thing over and over and over again? Why do I do this? Something insatiable that this sin isn't fulfilling. Five, the first and greatest commandment, as Dana mentioned earlier, is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Um, I would encourage you to read all of chapter 6, but let me just read 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel. Well, read this with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is called the great Shema. The first word in Hebrew is also the first word in English, hear. Uh, it, it loses a little bit of emphasis. It, it's more like, you know, pay attention. Stop and listen to me. This is a megaphone word in the book of Deuteronomy. Here, listen up, Israel. The Lord your God is one. Pay attention to the commandments, the statutes, the judgments of the law. It's an admonition to teach. And it's also interesting that it's in the land that this is occurring in the broader context. Um, they're monotheistic, again, against this polytheistic culture. Um, if we had time, I would show you a diagram called a Hebraism. And as this, as this passage expands, you're to teach them, and you're coming in, you're going out, you're rising up, you're rising up and you're laying down. You know what a, a mezuzah is? So if you see a door frame, uh, a prior Jewish owner, there's a little mezuzah on the door. In fact, I had one in my office. I bought one in Israel years ago. And inside the little mezuzah, on the front of it, is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet of Shema. It looks like a W in English, but it's, it's sort of a stylized thing. And it's got a little dot over it, Shema. And inside that is a little piece of parchment that only a male rabbi can write the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9, I believe. And they roll it up, and they put it inside there, and then they put a piece of tape over it. And it costs you $25 more to get that little thing put in there. And then you put it on your doorpost. And, and so the Jew would touch it when he or she would go out the door. The first home my parents bought, the only home in Texas that we're now selling in 1965, had mezuzahs on the front and back door. And they'd been painted over like eight times, but they were there. So there were Jewish owners there, and they would touch it on the way in and out. And, and the idea was, when you go outside, remember. Now, you know what a phylactery is? Jesus excoriates them. They broaden the phylacteries on their foreheads. They lengthen the tassels on their robes. A phylactery, uh, and if you see pictures of the so-called Western Wailing Wall, and those of you who are going to Israel are going to see it up close and personal. You're going to see people like it. They have these elaborate phylacteries. They're expensive. And they wrap, and they got a big box on them with the Shema on it. And they wear them on their heads. And they got the talits, the, 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 the robes with the stripes on them. And they got the tassels, and there's a certain number of knots. It's a very complicated system. And so all this appendage is part of the Shema. They took it literally. Did God say, strap a Bible on your forehead when you walk out the door? What was he saying? Keep the law in your mind. Keep it on your hand when you're working as a craftsman 
as a banker, as an accountant, as a person in the field, as a person with animals. Keep the law where you're working. And when you go in and out, remember, you're going out into the world, but remember God's word. And when you get up in the morning, remember God's word. When you go to bed at night, remember God's word. What's the, it's a beautiful passage. Teach your children in the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the going and coming of life. Teach your children all the time. And by the way, teach your sons and your grandsons because every generation needs to be re-educated. This is all the great Shema. And as Dana mentioned in Matthew 22 and also in Mark, this was the greatest commandment, Jesus said. He quotes this passage as the greatest commandment. The God who redeemed you from slavery will consecrate you for worship, and he's the only true God. Number six, satisfaction dulls our need for God. And this is an interesting and difficult passage, and I want to read this um, chapter 8, the first 11 verses, if you have your Bible. The kids have their Bible. Do you have yours? All the commandments that I am commanding you today shall be, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your forefathers. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Sound like something Jesus said one time? Your clothing did not wear out nor on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, of springs flowing forth in the valleys and hills. By the way, water is life in the Middle East, not oil. It's a desert. If you don't have water, you die. It's just that simple. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, and land of olive oil. Still to this day, they crank out the olive oil and honey. A land where you will eat food without scarcity. Still true today when you go to the buffet. In which you will not lack anything. A land whose stones and stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinance and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, here it is, when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery satisfaction dulls our need for God and this is why this is pencil theology not pen this is why I think God leads us in and out of trouble because apart from trouble and pain we do not grow we do not lean we do not depend when You've heard me say this 
countless times. When the marriage is good, the kids are good, the money's good, the job's good, the health is good, I like my house, I like the weather, when it's like today, everything's rosy, I don't need God. I don't need God. But you touch some area of my life. You touch a grandchild, a son, a daughter, a marriage, health, a friend, take my job away, I get sued, some injustice happens in my life, I get real busy. Why, Lord, why? Call my friends, pray. I guess we better read the Bible. Anybody like that but me? And I think a big part of it, and it hasn't changed, is when we're satisfied and satiated, we don't need God. So in the fallen construct, fallen planet, fallen people, fallen systems, we're going to bump in and out of these challenges to remind us because we don't remember and we forget the same as the ancients. Nothing really has changed. Last, final lesson, and this is one I would, I would do an entire message on if I had the chance. The final lesson in the book of, of uh, Deuteronomy is one I missed until about eight, oh, four years ago. And I, I didn't find this on my own. Uh, a dear man named Wendell Johnson, who, uh, when, when my mentor Howard Hendricks passed away, uh, I was asked to be part of the funeral. And Dr. Johnson did the, uh, the graveside. And there, so it was just the family and a few very close friends to Dr. Hendricks. And he used this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. I knew the story, but I didn't see the point he drew out. Let me just, we'll close with this. So, this is, so you remember Moses has failed. He was supposed to speak to the rock, and what did he do? And he struck it twice, and he said, you're not going to the land. You have, you've insulted me in front of all of Israel because you didn't do what I told you to do. You of all people. But he's still gracious to him. He lets him see the land from a distance, and he dies. So this is chapter 34 records the death. Obviously, Moses couldn't have recorded this. I mean, I guess he could, and you know, then he died afterwards, but that wouldn't make sense. So let's pick it up in verse Five. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him. Who's the he? The Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Now, we've talked about Christophanies and Theophanies till your head spins a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus buries his servant Moses. Moses is alone. Jesus is with him. He dies, and Jesus buries him. More than likely in the ancient Near Eastern culture at that time, it's a rock carom. It's a pile of rocks. Because you don't dig a you know, six-foot grave and put a vault in it in those days. It's a pile of rocks. This doesn't take sanctified imagination. This is a pretty accurate record of what happens. So I see Jesus with his friend Moses who dies in front of him. No hospice. He dies in front of him. And he orders him, probably puts him neatly, probably wraps his tunic around him in some fashion, and he piles a bunch of rocks on him. And then my friend Dr. Johnson said, as we were putting Howard Hendricks in the grave, he said, there's dignity in the death and burial of a servant of Christ. There's dignity in the death and burial. I'd never thought about that before. 
When we have a funeral service, I mean, we're obviously doing officiating a service. I officiated one not long ago, but two weeks ago maybe. Actually, two or three recently. And it's, there's dignity in the burial. It's sad. It's solemn. Why do we do it? We do it for lots of reasons in our Western culture. But what I find striking is that the, the book ends, the package of the five volumes, five chapters law, who was given to Moses to be the one who gave the law to his people, no one like him. He got to talk to God face to face. Nobody gets to do that. Nobody went up on Sinai but him. And the, even the rabbis today, the Orthodox ones, revere Moses as a great servant of God. And the chapter closes on, we're going to bury him right. Wasn't a burial like Joseph's. Wasn't a burial like Abraham's. A burial in a rock pile on the wrong side of the Jordan. But Jesus was the officiant. That's pretty cool. There's dignity in the death of Moses, and there was dignity in the fact that God came down to bury him. Well, that's the book of Deuteronomy, or at least one run at it.